This is Central Time. I'm Lee Rayburn in for Rob Ferrett. And coming up, federal prosecutors indict former President Donald Trump and the Republican primary field grows to a dozen candidates. We have a Marquette University political science professor joining us to discuss the latest in 2024 presidential politics. But first, if you're heading into the great outdoors this summer, what are you bringing for food? My last camping trip was to the Black Hills of South Dakota. We brought a bunch of pre-processed bags of dehydrated food. We just had to add the boiling water. And we got bored of those bags after our first day in the forest. Well, it's Food Friday here on Central Time, and today we're taking our outdoor meals to the next level. Whether you're backpacking through the North Woods or pitching a tent in your own backyard, our next guest is here to show us how to make gourmet food from the kitchen to the campsite or the cabin, wherever you're going this summer. You can join us at 1-800-642-1234. Your favorite meals to make outside. How do you approach your pl- camping meal plans? And do you prep your dishes ahead of time or make everything right over the fire? A little bit of both, perhaps. 1-800-642-1234. Or you can post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Our guest is Chris Nuttall-Smith. He is a food writer, a critic, and a judge on the cooking show Top Chef Canada. His new cookbook is called Cook It Wild, Sensational Prep-Ahead Meals for Camping, Cabins, and the Great Outdoors. Chris, welcome to Central Time. It's so nice to be here with you, Lee. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I understand you just got back yourself from camping this week. How was it? Where'd you go? Well, I got two hours eastward on the highway before I turned around. I was stopped by smoke, <gasps> uh, believe it or not. So I'm, I'm a little disappointed, but my wife and I, we're going we're gonna to give it another go next week. Oh, yeah. I did not think of that. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear <laughs> Neither that. Neither did I. I. I felt pretty dumb after driving two hours, but it, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't great. I, I understand when you get that itch and you just want to go. So, and, and I also understand from Cook It Wild that you probably had prepped some meals to take with you. What did you have planned to eat on your trip, Chris? I had some good food in my cooler. So <laughs> I was meeting a friend for a fishing trip. Um, I had a mix of really good lunches. There's a there's a grilled ham and cheese sandwich that you prep ahead. And you just put it in a pan or on a grill, whatever you want. It's called bikini sandwiches. They're mm-hmm. from Spain. I had some really, really good buttermilk and corn flapjacks, which I love. And you put scallions in them. There's a bit of – you just add a bit of frozen corn if you have it. And they're just sweet and savory and crunchy. I had a bunch of good stuff. Anyway, it went back into the fridge, into the freezer. It's going to hold. It's going to be just fine. So I'm disappointed. More than anything, I'm just jonesing to get outside. It's that time of year. (laughs) Well, uh, as I was coming to work today, my neighbor was leaving for the Shawamigan Nicolay National Forest. And I was like, boy, have I got the book for you. Oh, man. (laughs) If he had planned ahead. And by the way, the flapjacks I had on my list were the uh, chickpea flapjacks from your book, Cook It Wild. So there's a couple of variations there. But a lot of this has to do with the planning that you go ahead and do well before the camping. And that's perfect for me because when I've got uh, like a vacation or camping on my schedule, weeks before that happens, I begin plotting and scheming and planning just as a mental Ah. escape uh, from, you know, vacation before the vacation. And you've got in your book five keys to to these camping, this camping fair. Uh, Take us through them, Chris. That all has to do with being ahead. It's all about getting ahead. So this is a prep ahead, make ahead book. Um, Almost all the recipes you do ahead of time. And that doesn't mean you need to spend hours and hours or days prepping them. A lot of the recipes take 10 minutes at your kitchen counter. Some of them are more involved, but you know, you really pick, but those five keys to prepping at home, 
chop ahead anything you can cut up whether it's vegetables whether that means taking the bones out of meat whatever do it at home um and it saves you time you're not balancing a cutting board on your lap as you're sitting around a fire trying to relax it works mix ahead um whether that's spice blends for grilling whether you're making you know dry mixes for these flapjacks i mm -hmm. mentioned uh, if you got a great cheese, grate it at home. You don't need to bring a grater and a whole block of cheese. It also lets you measure things in advance. Cook ahead if there's anything that you can cook down. So I have a paella recipe. It's kind of one of the showstoppiest oh, yeah. recipes recipes in the book. And you know when you make paella, you cut up onions and all sorts of stuff. Well, I put those in my food processor. It takes about three minutes to chop them, and then I cook them at home. And I put them in a bag and I stick them in the freezer. So when you get to camp. Most of your work is already done. Seal ahead. What that means is, you know, if, if you want to, you know, something, if you want to bring something that comes in a, you know, a, a big bag from the supermarket or, you know, transfer it, measure out how much you need and bring just that. You can put them in little plastic containers and resealable bags. If you have a backpacker, you can backpack whatever you want. And that applies to wine and, and drinks as well. You can't bring glass bottles to a lot of camping areas. And the other thing is, if you pour, you know, wine, whatever you want to drink into uh, soda bottles, for instance, um, you can freeze them. And so they help keep your cooler cold. And who doesn't like slushy wine? <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's a bunch of little tips and tricks. They apply to all the recipes in, in the book. And they're things that people can use before they're going camping, whether that, you know, they're cooking straight out of the book or whether they're doing their own recipes. Sure. Uh, Chris Nuttlesmith, our guest, and his uh, book for Our Food Friday is Cook It Wild, and we're taking a look at how you can prep ahead to take a gourmet meals with you wherever you're going this season. And when it comes to freezing ahead, I took a look at what you do with your cooler, and it made me think of Tetris, Chris. <laughs> it's not that hard, I promise. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny. A, a lot of the cooler companies, you know, have, have done a lot of educating people. People, so many people now have these hugely expensive um, coolers. And I spent years on the sidelines thinking, oh my, are, are they worth it? Are they worth it? Mm -hmm. Well, if you, if you have the means, or you can borrow one from friends. They do work really well. That does not mean you need one. But yeah, I lay out in the book how to pack a cooler, no matter what kind of cooler you have. You should, your cooler should start cold. If it's been sitting in a hot garage and you put ice in it, your ice is going to start to melt. And then, yeah, you, you, know, you put block ice on the bottom if you can. Any of your food that you can freeze ahead, freeze it. It acts like ice. And then, you know, there's some basic things like anything you're going to need on day one, you know, your lunch on the first day, that should go right at the top of the cooler so you don't have to dig around for it. If you have a bottle of something, stand it up. They're easier to find that way. So mm. there's a bunch of tricks like that. And then, you know, one of the simplest ones is if you have a beach towel and you have a little extra space at the top of your cooler, put that beach towel at the top of your cooler under the lid. It fills the space. It keeps hot air from getting in. It keeps your food colder longer. It's it sounds like Tetris, Chris. Um, <laughs> okay, fine, it's Tetris. Well, that's a fun game. Well, here, here, and the other thing. Okay, this is something I probably I, I I did not think of when it comes to camping, but dairy and eggs. And you have a way of keeping dairy and eggs so that you can take it with you and use them for your meals from dinner to breakfast and snacks in between. Yeah, I mean, depending on what kind of dairy, I, I run through the options, you know, mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's kind of a long-haul backpacking trip. And Cooking Wild, by the way, is not just for car campers. A lot of the better kind of camp cookbooks are for car campers. But if you're backpacking or you're paddling, you're out of luck. Cook It Wild is for every kind of camper. So if you're going on a long backpacking trip, maybe you're bringing dehydrated milk. 
Uh, but I bring people through the different options. You can freeze milk and cream if you've got room. Just give them a shake when they thaw. I also, you know, in the way of dairy, uh, cheeses. I tell people what cheeses are great to bring that you don't need to refrigerate. I think maybe in Wisconsin, I think it's probably people have a, a better understanding of cheese. But in much of Canada where I live and I know in much of the U.S., People think if you leave a piece of cheese out on the counter for five minutes and you even look at it, you're going to die. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's just reminding people a lot of cheeses. Cheese making is a food storage technique. So telling people these are the great cheeses you can bring, you know, including some cheddars, including, you know, Parmesan and Manchego and a lot of soft cheeses as well. And, you know, they'll keep in your pack for five, seven days plus. So, yeah, dairy and eggs, you know, one of the tricks to eggs, there's a there's just a decadent i i think it's the best french toast anybody will ever eat uh in the book and you think well how do you make french toast yep. camping i don't want to bring cream and eggs right. and all that you don't you make it at your counter it takes six minutes at home you whisk cream eggs maybe some orange zest little sugar a little salt you put them in a little plastic bottle like a nalgene and you freeze it so you get to camp you thaw out your 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 batter it usually just thaws out naturally in a day but you can thaw it out if you want you put it on your bread and you have this decadent French toast that you didn't have to do almost anything for a can. I got when we when we were getting ready for this interview, Chris, I thought that French toast recipe looks really good. We'd love to share it with our audience. But then I thought <laughs> it is so simple that it's not worth actually posting because once you once you put it together, you spend a few minutes of prep at home and then a few minutes on the grill or, or at the uh, campfire. Uh, yeah. you've, you've got French toast. And I was like, it and can't... this is the trick of the book. I mean, <laughs> so much of what's in the book um, once you understand, you know, just that little trick, just make your batter home and freeze it. It's intuitive. It makes, <laughs> it makes so much sense. Why now, didn't I think part, of this? Really, you know, and as I was researching, you know, little things like you want to bring feta, feta cheese, a great cheese, whether you're making chilaquiles or whatever, but feta cheese, you know, you got to pack it in brine. No, you don't. Freeze it. <laughs> Take it out of the brine and freeze it. You want to bring some black beans or any kind of beans out of a can, empty them into a zip top bag freeze it they store beautifully they're so much easier to bring so there's little tricks like that all through the book that you realize oh yeah this is really going to change what i'm able to eat what i'm able to serve my friends and family and you know how delicious a trip is going to be and it's not dehydrated you know survivalist food yeah, the book is Cook It Wild, Sensational Prep-Ahead Meals for Camping Cabins and the Great Outdoors. Our guest, Chris Nuttall-Smith, joining us. He is a uh, judge on Top Chef Canada. And we're also looking for your suggestions, your go-tos at the campsite. What do you enjoy cooking? And do you do some prep before you leave? 1-800-642-1234 to join our Food Friday conversation today. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can also post on our Ideas Network Facebook page. Now, it's not like we didn't have recipes to put on the website today, and you can find those from Chris's book at WPR.org slash Food Friday. He mentioned the Campfire Paella, and we'll go over that next, as well as his go-to granola. Uh, and it's something you know you can buy and pay too much for, or you can make it home and enjoy uh, while you're outdoors this summer. Also, again, you can join us at 1-800-642-1234. We'll continue our Food Friday conversation with Chris Nettle-Smith and maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time.
You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Lee Rayburn, and we're picking up our talk with Chris Nuttall-Smith, a judge on the cooking show Top Chef Canada, food writer, and his new cookbook is Cook It Wild, sensational prep-ahead meals for camping, cabins, and the great outdoors. I invite you to join us uh, on our Facebook page, Ideas Network Facebook page, uh, or call 1-800-642-1234. And let's get to this campfire paella that you mentioned earlier, Chris. Our, uh, the recipe can be, be found online at wpr.org slash food friday this really elevates our campsite cooking but you got to do some work ahead of time in order to take it there yeah there's there's a bit of prep that's what makes it doable i mean the fascinating thing two really interesting things about this recipe to me first of all this is the recipe that turned me on to make ahead prep ahead cooking i've been a food writer forever but like a lot of people, I always thought, you know, good eating and being outdoors don't really go together. <laughs> I had a friend who I went camping with. She's an accomplished indoors person. She is not a camper, but she brought this. She had prepped it ahead. She made it over the fire. It took about 25 minutes, and it was one of the best meals I've ever had in the outdoors. But the other thing to know about paella is it started off as this humble laborer's meal in the rice fields in Spain. And People would cook it at lunchtime over a fire, often in the blade of a metal shovel. So I think in a lot of people's imaginations, it's this very complicated, you know, fancified meal. It doesn't have to be that. So the recipe I have, you know, you you chop up your vegetables, you know, onions, peppers, you know, garlic, just in a food processor. You can do it with a knife if you want at home. And you cook them down in olive oil. You add some Spanish paprika, uh, you know, some tomatoes and so on and you cook that down and then you pack it up and you freeze it and when you get to camp you have a little bag of your rice which is already measured out you know you've got your saffron and your salt measured out in there and um there's uh three variations the one i make and this is to me so this friend of mine brought what i call a block of frozen squid which to me is <laughs> at, especially the time was one of the all-time yeah. dumbest things i'd ever seen someone bring camping <laughs> I, my eyes just bugged out when she told me she had that. But what she had was a zip-top bag with, you know, squid that had been chopped up. And she threw it in the pan over the fire with some olive oil, no fuss, no muss. And, uh, you know, she added a few shrimp, same thing. They'd been frozen. They were easy to bring in, you know, added those vegetables and the rice. And we got this smoky, crackly, crusted, just decadent paella and I just remember eating under the stars that evening and looking around. We've all got campfires blowing on our faces and just thinking, like, I can't believe this is camping. <laughs> uh, and there are variations in your book as well. So if, if squid froze, a block of frozen squid is not your thing <laughs> for a camping trip, you'll find variations in cooking. There's wild. one with chickpeas. There, you know, there's one with chicken and artichokes, too. So there's, <laughs> there's easier, simpler versions. But, yeah, I mean, if you got an RV or a car or you're an ambitious paddler, I highly recommend the seafood one, too. All right. It's your turn now to uh, join us for Food Friday at 1-800-642-1234, where Mike in Wauwatosa is standing by. Mike, good afternoon. Hi. How are you? Good. What do you have for us today? Um, Seafood. I tried aluminum foil on fish, whatever type of fish you want, and it doesn't seem to work. And when you put shrimp on it or shish kebabs, they just fall in the grill and 
It's a mess. You sound defeated, Mike. Let's see if we that, can. That, that, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> Let's see if we can't get Chris to help here with some seafood and some shrimp uh, at the campsite on the fire. Chris, what do you do? Sure. Well, I guess the question is, uh, um, was the issue that it fell out of the foil? It just the foil wasn't holding, or was it something about the taste of the seafood? It didn't, didn't, didn't cook correctly. Okay. Well, what I recommend, so I break down in the book how to make foil packets so they work. Often, it comes down to the the, the foil you're using, really, and the heavy-duty stuff, which is thicker and it's wider. I use a double layer of that. You always need to have, you know, uh, your vegetable or protein, that's your seafood, you need to have some kind of fat in there, whether it's butter or olive oil um, and, you know, some seasonings like salt and so on. If you get those three elements in there and you pack them up, right it it usually works but i'm sorry it it didn't work out for you um it it, it's that's one of the great standby camping meals so i'm frustrated on your behalf heavy duty foil though bit of fat in there to you know give the seafood some moisture and something to cook in and don't forget the salt and seasonings and, and you're off to the races let's go next to megan in green bay megan good afternoon you're on the air with chris nuttle smith Hi, um, I have a very simple recipe to share. Um, I'm enjoying listening to the program and learning about all these fancy things. <laughs> but I love <laughs> ramen noodles, peanut butter, and soy sauce. Oh, I love it. Well, I love it. Yeah, because there is a whole ramen section in in your book, Mike. So, uh, but I do not recall the peanut butter soy sauce combo. I, I'm just imagining it. So you've almost got like a Southeast Asian like peanut element there and the soy sauce is adding the salt. To be honest, that sounds pretty delicious. Ramen is such a great, versatile, <laughs> excuse me, camping meal. And, you know, not every meal you have to have, you know, in the outdoors has to be fancy. I love that you mix it up. That's something I put in the book as well. Just different Things you can do with ramen to gussy it up a little bit. I love that you've gone there. It sounds delicious. And Megan, I would also, if you could, bring a lime with you and add a little lime to that as well for a little citrus in in the ramen. You're uh, talking my language, Lee. <laughs> Chris <Donald laughs> I love it. Guest for our Food Friday, his book, Cook It Wild, How You Can Prep Ahead Your Meals for Camping Cabins and the Great Outdoors. Let's talk about the other recipe that we've got available for uh, uh, online at WPR.org slash Food Friday, and that's your go-to granola recipe. Now, usually... I'll spend a lot of money on the expensive store-bought, easy, ready-to-go granola, but might be a little stale, and it's certainly not my own. You make it your own, Chris. I make my own granola. And listen, granola, as you have noted, the good stuff is so pricey. But the thing about granola, when you make it yourself, it's less expensive, and you can also put such good food in there. Great seeds, nuts, tons of flavor. What I do with my granola is I just break it down into a ratio that makes sense that you're not going to screw up. So three parts rolled oats, one part seeds, one part uh, half and half fat and some kind of sweetener, whether that's olive oil and maple syrup or whatever you want to use. And then some, some nuts and some fruit or whatever. Anyway, I break down the ratio. I tell people how to do it. So it's foolproof and it's just such a great way to start your day when you're out there there's lots of energy and protein and i eat it as a trail snack too one of my secret ingredients that i love is dried sour cherries Mm, the 
Mm, well, we've got those in Wisconsin. <laughs> we can do that here. Uh, Mark, oh, sour cherries are one of the one of the most underrated fruits there is. Perfect. Uh, we've got a Facebook comment from Mark who says he's fond of taking a bake uh, baking chicken in a Dutch oven loaded with carrots, leeks, onions, and more. Taking it, baking it for about two and a half hours on low heat, and he uses it as a soup base. And you use your Dutch oven in any number of ways. From I, I think it is uh, you've got uh, sticky rolls in there. You've got Dutch babies in there. Uh, uh, that Dutch oven seems to go a long way out in the great outdoors, Chris. They're fantastic. I, I really love mine. So some people have the heavier cast iron ones. I have a cast aluminum one. So I bring it on canoe trips where there's a lot of portaging even. Um, they are versatile. They're great pots. They're a little heavier. But if you're camping in a group, you can, you know, break up, you know, who's carrying what. And, you know, I even have, I make a dry, uh, just a chocolate cake mix. You make it at home. All you have to add is melted butter. Well, butter lasts forever if it's salted. And water. And you can make the most spectacular chocolate cake out in the wild. It's one of my favorite party tricks. People's eyes just always kind of jump out of their head when they see it. Is and, that the uh, Backwoods birthday cake in your book? That's that's the Backwoods birthday cake for an excitable child, it's called. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, if if you're turning it into a birthday, you bring some sparklers, you know, maybe you're bringing some decorations, but, you know, even just for grown-ups, it's just this decadent, moist chocolate cake that you're literally making in the campfire. We don't need kids for that chocolate cake. No, you do not. <laughs> Send the kids off to collect firewood while you eat it. There's not enough for them. Uh, as we wrap up here, Chris, if we're going to be camping for more than just a couple of days, what tips do you have for keeping uh, things uh, crispy, keeping things fresh on a longer camping trip? It really comes down to eating your, you know, your fresh food, the stuff that's perishable at the beginning. There are so many you know, mixes you can make, things you can make that uh, will last without refrigeration. And listen, vegetables. I have a wife who loves cruciferous vegetables, cabbage in particular. So she will smuggle a quarter head of green cabbage in the bottom of my food bag. I carry it for days. And then you reach, oh my, what is this thing at the bottom? So, you know, there's just a very simple dressing. It's made with a bit of miso and sesame and, and some vinegar. And that will last without refrigeration for a month. So you clean up that cabbage, you add a little bit of this dressing, and you've got such a nice, crunchy, fresh thing to eat. But carrots are great. Granny Smith apples last. Don't ever underestimate how much people want some freshness and some crunch when they're a few days out in the woods. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lee. Chris Nuttall-Smith for our Food Friday to talk about his new cookbook, Cook It Wild, Sensational Prep-Ahead Meals for Camping, Cabins, and the Great Outdoors. Don't forget those recipes that you can find online at wpr.org slash foodfriday. This is Central Time. I'm Lee Rayburn in for Rob Ferrett. And coming up at 6 on 1A Plus with Jen White, it's this week's International Roundup. Floodwaters overwhelm cities and towns in southern Ukraine. Brazil lays out a new plan to save the Amazon. And the White House welcomes the U.K.'s latest prime minister. It's all tonight at 6 on 1A Plus. Now, Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump is now the first former uh, or sitting president in American history to face a federal indictment. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice. And our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. 
That was the special counsel, Jack Smith, earlier today after federal prosecutors unsealed the indictments of former President Donald Trump and one of his personal aides. At the same time, the Republican field of primary presidential contenders continues to grow. This week, former Vice President Mike Pence and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie both entered the race. That now has about a dozen hopefuls. So... What would you like to know about how a frontrunner's federal indictment could affect this presidential race? We are a couple months away from the first presidential debate, which will be held a Republican primary presidential debate, which will be held in Milwaukee. And how are you differentiating the roughly dozen candidates on the GOP side? And how do you feel about Democratic President Joe Biden running for re-election? You can join our conversation at 1-800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. It's a presidential politics roundup with Julia Azari joining us now, Marquette University Professor of Political Science. And Julia, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. What well, a week. Yeah, we are in some uncharted waters here with a former president now facing his second indictment in three weeks, this following a, uh, a court that found him liable and for millions of dollars in a civil case. How, if at all, is this affecting the Republican race for the to be the next presidential nominee? Well, there's a couple of different ideas, and this is all really just trying to think it through because, of course, we don't have any um, polling that reflects the changes, uh, the events of yesterday and the release of the indictment charges today. Um, we'll know more in, you know, in a week or two. The first indictment, the one that came down in Manhattan um, a, a while back, seems to, seems to have actually improved Trump's standing in the Republican nomination polls. And this might, this is just a coincidence in time, and it might just be that. Um, But it might also be that this has sort of closed ranks um, around the president's supporters and kind of reminded them that they support him because he sort of pushes back on on established institutions in a way that appeals to them. That might not, that might not translate to this latest indictment. It might, again, we're sort of purely speculating. The other piece that is interesting, especially as you point out, as there's a whole bunch of other uh, hopefuls in the field, is this argument about electability and his kind of chances in the general. And it seems that this is, on the one hand, this effect is potentially quite real, um, that the general public isn't super keen on, um, on these indictments and is somewhat concerned about what the former president may have done and, and and see some room for holding him accountable in the event that that these charges stick. Um, but the other piece of that is, will that actually, you know, does that accountability or excuse me, electability argument hold water in the context of the primary? It's not totally obvious yet that that is exactly how Republican primary voters are thinking um, about the different candidates. So that's that those are the sort of two lines of logic that i see there um it seems kind of insane to say that it's it's not certain that this will affect um will affect the nomination at all but it's possible that that's going to be the case well, but there is also the possibility of a third indictment still to come out of Fulton County, Georgia, about uh the 2000 uh the 2000 uh the, the election yeah the 20 yeah absolutely 2020 yep um thank you the um, I know it's it's been a week. So, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I have no, I have no idea whether that will happen and, and, and in what time frame, um, or what impact that would possibly be. I do think that one of the things we'll learn, I'm probably going to say this phrase a lot during our, our time together, that things that we will learn, um, because we do not know because this has not happened. Um, but one of the things I think we'll learn is how much of this in, in the public mind is about sort of comes down to it's all about how people already feel about Trump. Most people know how they feel. It's all about partisanship. It's all about these sort of baked in existing attitudes versus how much of it is a response to what's actually happened. Um, and the substance of each indictment is quite different and signifies, I think, really different kinds of things that people might be thinking about. And the one in New York, I know, did, you know, struck some people as kind of chained together. You know, it's a, it's a financial disclosure charge that is connected to um, this kind of larger set of um, potential crimes. And that's, I think, maybe harder for people. It was, you know, I had to read it a couple of times to grasp exactly the, the legal logic of that. And also um, not just not as big of a deal. This this um, 49 page uh, indictment that has been unsealed today, it has much larger kind of um, implications about national security and classified documents and there are all these kind of questions about how much that is um, potentially going to matter and Georgia would would cue in a whole other thing yet about um, about the the status of the election after um, the 2020 votes were were cast and counted and so voters may have very different impressions of each of each indictment we may be dealing with very different things or it may come to kind of down to as so many things do kind of what side are you on set of questions that doesn't take the substance into account i we just don't know and things we still have to learn julia zari political science professor at marquette university joining us but what about how these indictments are affecting the rest of the republican field right now you had uh florida governor ron DeSantis defending the former president as a victim of quote the weaponization of federal law enforcement you had uh, republican candidate and businessman vivek ramaswamy saying that he would pardon donald trump on day one were he to be elected president where you have others like asa hutchinson the former arkansas governor governor has said this is reason enough for him to step aside from the field. Chris Christie, former governor from New Jersey, seems set to at least uh, do what he can to undercut uh, former President Trump. And I, there's a, a Donald, uh, Mike Pence joined the field of Republican presidential contenders this week, but seems to have had the uh, wind taken out of his sails by all the Donald Trump news today. Yeah, that I mean, that's a pretty good it's a pretty good rundown. It's quite fascinating to watch a number of these hopefuls, you know, on the one hand, Trump is the person to beat. Trump is the person to run against. Um, and to watch, especially candidates like, um, like Pence and DeSantis, whose main project is differentiating themselves from Trump in some way. And so Pence kind of came out the gate uh, earlier in the week trying to differentiate himself from Trump and really to draw a distinction between their reactions to January 6th, which was an interesting, interesting choice. Um, but then when, when it came time to talk about this particular indictment, they very much, I saw someone, I saw something today that sort of put this really succinctly. They very much became, you know, what team are you on and, and who's part of the team? And on the one hand, this makes perfect sense. That is how political parties work. Um, it's important to remember when we're thinking about, presidential primary it's not the same thing as a general election it's a party process of people who are ultimately 
going to share a lot of the same ideas and pull in the same direction. But on the other hand, this is really the key moment to differentiate yourself from, you know, from a pretty major situation going on for the former president. And many of them, with the exception, as you said, of, of Asa Hutchinson, have kind of opted not to not to really embrace that tack and instead to close ranks a little bit. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence joining the race this week in his campaign announcement in Iowa had this in part to say. We can defend our nation and secure our border. We can revive our economy and put our nation back on a path to a balanced federal budget. We can defend our liberties and give America a new beginning for life. But it will require new leadership in the White House and the Republican Party. The crises we face, to borrow a phrase, are all man-made. And that man is Joe Biden. Julia, you co-authored an opinion piece this week at MSNBC.com about how Mike Pence appears to be trying to take the Reagan-Republican lane. Um, and then the question about what that Reagan-Republican lane would look like in a 2024 presidential election. Yeah, I'm a little bit obsessed with this idea of the way that politicians use time as kind of a marker for ideology. <laughs> and I, I think politicians in both parties do this, which we wrote about a bit in the piece, that usually when um, when politicians in the past have talked about something being new, new is sort, of a, is sort of a word that stands in for kind of moderating and moving to the center and kind of retooling what the party stands for. And you see bits and pieces, kind of elements of that in some of these strategies because the last couple of years have been relatively rough at the national level. Um, for for Republicans and maybe especially in 2022, losing a lot of races that um, they might have expected to win. And I see Pence doing this in a kind of very interesting way. So in that clip there, he talks about new leadership and moving on from the Trump years. But at the same time, he's very interested in sort of moving backwards into this more classical vision of of Reagan Republicanism. And ideologically, that's not exactly to the center but it is to the mainstream. And I think that that's, it's just very interesting to me. And it also highlights something that I feel like we don't, we don't hear a whole lot about, sort of gets absorbed in a lot of the sideshow of day-to-day -day politics, but that there are some, some real emergent fissures in the Republican Party around Trumpism and foreign policy. And the kind of sense of what the country will be in the world and how it will operate, that the substance of of Reagan's administration um, and how it how it operated in the world, how it thought about alliances, that's very, very different from a more sort of populist and inward looking um, Trump kind of approach. And that that all really comes to a head in the Russia situation and in in kind of, you know, doubling down on support for Ukraine versus pivoting to more accommodation of of Putin and Russia. And those are very important and substantive issues. And there are disagreements ideologically, I think, to some degree uh, within both camps, but especially among Republicans. And that's an area where Pence also really breaks with his, you know, his former running mate. 
Julia Azari, our guest, professor of political science at Marquette University. We're looking at the field of presidential candidates with the unsealed indictment today of former president and current candidate uh, Donald Trump. Get your reaction when we continue at 1-800-642-1234. What do you see in this presidential field as it now stands, and what will you be watching for going forward? 1-800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Our conversation with Julia continues coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Lee Rayburn, and we're continuing our conversation with Marquette University political science professor Julia Zari. We're looking at the broad field of presidential contenders for 2024. We're taking a look at the news today about the unsealed uh, 39, uh, 37 felony count indictment against former president and current candidate Donald Trump and what that may do to upset the field or uh, how it may be maintained. And how do you feel about the federal agents indicting a former president? Who would you like to see get the GOP nomination. You can join our conversation at 1-800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Uh, I'm watching the Sunday morning talking head shows over the weekend, Julia. One of the things that stood out to me was a guest on Meet the Press, uh, Senator Mike Rounds from South Dakota, saying that he wouldn't commit to supporting a Republican presidential candidate unless that candidate were Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. He hasn't gotten a a lot of attention or notice so far in the Republican presidential contending race, uh, but that certainly stood out to me. What did you make of that statement? Well, that's interesting. I, yeah, that's that's a good point. Scott has sort of fallen off the radar with all the uh, hoopla of this past week, um, but he is a really interesting candidate. Um, I mean, we'll see. I think he makes as much sense as a number of the other candidates in the race, and maybe even you know, maybe even more um, in terms of kind of bridging both the kind of Trump wing of the Republican Party and the more traditional wings. Pence is really throwing his lot in um, with a more traditional wing, which is tricky since he was in the Trump administration. Um, we also haven't talked a lot about about um, Chris Christie, who's a New Jersey Republican, which means that long before Trump was on the scene, Christie was sort of you know, had worked with Democrats a lot, being in a more Democratic part of the country. And, you know, Tim Scott has done some bipartisan work, um, is an African-American Republican, which is um, which is unusual in Congress and has has worked some on on race issues, has also taken some more conservative stances on that. Um, you know, this is a very, very interesting, very interesting figure. Um, and it is very interesting to see one of his Senate colleagues um make that kind of make that kind of endorsement and have that not be from just from someone for example from his own from his own state so maybe he's a sort of quiet alternative to um to trump i think that one of the things that's is not very sort of theoretically interesting to talk about but is nevertheless true is that name recognition counts for a lot in primaries like the ones that we have that go on for a long time and cost a lot of money and Scott is, you know, has maybe a, even more of an uphill battle than some of the other uh, longer shot candidates. And that's so that's a little bit challenging. He's sort of seems in some ways like some of the uh, members of Congress who were trying to get the Democratic nomination in 2020 and just didn't have the, the kind of name recognition liftoff, even though they were 
interesting candidates. Which is why his name popped out to me when it came up on Meet yeah. the Press on Sunday. I was, I was rather surprised. Let's go to your calls now with our guest, Julia Zari, professor of political science at Marquette University at 1-800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Lauren Madison, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Well, hi. Uh, I heard you mention the perennial uh, problem of uh, kind of firebrand candidates who not necessarily a majority of voters support in the getting getting the nod in the primary. And I'm wondering why I am not hearing at all in the press from experts like yourself about the institution of ranked choice voting, which would pretty much eliminate that problem altogether. I would love to hear a political scientist take on ranked choice voting. Now, this is where you don't just mark a box, but you rank the candidates by the way you see them. And then there can be runoffs so that if your first top candidate isn't selected or isn't among the contenders, that you would actually still not be throwing your vote away, but would still have a chance to have your vote count towards one of your other top ranked uh, uh, candidates. Julia, what do you think of ranked choice voting? I guess, I mean, I hear other experts talk about it all the time and if you if you want to um hear more about it i would i would suggest checking out some work by my my colleague and good friend lee drutman um at the new at new america is a think tank and he's written a lot on this on this topic um i mean i think you know it plays out slightly differently if we're thinking about um if we're thinking about a general election versus a primary hmm. um one of the ideas with a general election is like it might make things more conducive for a multi-party system. Also, as the caller pointed out, like it, it might sort of reduce the voice of um, more extreme candidates um, at the expense of maybe more sort of moderate and mainstream candidates. I'm really not sure about it all, to be honest. Um, right now, we have a couple of states and localities that have experimented with it. I don't think it's really conclusive that it's that it's done a whole lot. It might be possible that with these these changes would play out over a really long period of time. Um, I think it's possible that like there's still people arguing about 2016 because Trump was not a majority was sort of not a majority favorite. He was kind of a plurality candidate in the Republican Party of, you know, what would that have looked like under different voting systems? Would another candidate have been able to consolidate support and like people don't agree so i think that i think it's interesting to explore i think it's worth thinking about um but the and jury's certainly out. worth reading up on but yeah the, in my opinion and i think this is the expert consensus now that like, maine has tried it alaska's tried it new york city did it in their mayoral election it's sort of like the jury's out it hasn't really produced any really stunning outcomes we go next to Max in Barron County. Max, good afternoon. You're on the air with Julia Zari. Max? Hi. I, hi. Uh, you asked who uh, I would thought would be a good candidate. Just somebody with less background in politics and uh, higher education, a Ph.D., a doctorate. Um, biased opinion, I would say doctorate in environmental science, but... Anything in the, that higher education range? 
Well, that and and it's in, I appreciate the call, Max, because the, the, there is always this call for we want a politician who's not a politician, and and that was Donald Trump uh, in 2016. But right now, uh, you say PhD, and I think Cornell West, who is going to run on the People's Party ticket, who's a PhD and and taught at Harvard and Princeton, but that certainly seems to be among the third parties and the longest of long shots. But the idea of a polit- non-politician running for political office. What do you think, Julia? Well, I think, I mean, I think everyone's got to start somewhere, right? So um, eventually, so you always have to, you know, run for your first office. I don't see anything really wrong with um, people being in office for a long time. And there are trade-offs. You learn a lot in office. Um, you learn a lot about how public policy works. I think the, I think the caller is expressing a very interesting view, which is sort of like a mixture of anti-politician but very pro kind of like expertise and subject matter i think this is really interesting i haven't thought about it i very rarely hear people say they want to hear more from phds in any context (laughs) um but um, the no i think that's super interesting um i think that people who want to get into politics from another field would do well to kind of start local and work their Mm -hmm. way up um presidency is a big is a big job for um, someone without kind of public service and and political expertise. But and working think, your way up makes you a politician, right, Julia? It does. Yeah, yeah. so the, it's kind of a, a, you're in a bind, and maybe for president you'd want somebody who has some political experience uh, to step into it. And, and uh, I apologize, we're out of time, but we could talk about this all afternoon. Julia, Absolutely. thank you. For, thank you so much for yours today. Yeah, thank you. Julia Azari is professor of political science at Marquette University. Hey, Rob Ferret returns to Central Time on Monday, and he'll be taking a look at some of the most recent series finales and why it's so hard to say goodbye to good TV. Uh, join Rob as he has Brian Carr back joining him on Monday from 3 to 6 here on the Ideas Network.